I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. Security threats are everywhere. To tackle these threats, we can gather and analyze information about potential attacks. Barbara Kay, Senior Director of Security Product at ExtraHop, explained internal and external threats that systems can be exposed to. We talked about different types of threats and how these can be identified using machine learning. Barbara also explained the product development strategy for products and security. Prior to working at ExtraHop, Barbara led security operations, market research, and product strategy for McAfee, and was responsible for threat intelligence and analytics solutions, as well as the security information and event management. Before McAfee, her consultancy helped innovators, including Cisco, WebSense, Good Technologies, McAfee, and Netgear. Before we get on with the show, I'd like to thank Blind for being a sponsor. Navigating the workplace can be a challenge. Blind is here to help. Blind is an anonymous app for tech workers where they can discuss and talk about career development, compensation, workplace harassment, corporate policies, and more. Go to teamblind.com to download the app and connect with other employees from your company. That's teamblind.com. Thank you. Barbara Kay, Senior Director of Security Product at ExtraHop, is joining us today. Barbara, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. appreciate the chance to talk with you today. You've been in security for more than two decades. You worked at Sun Microsystems, McAfee, and right now you're at ExtraHop. One area that you work on is cyber threat intelligence, where we can gather and analyze information about potential attacks. Can you explain in more detail what threat intelligence consists of? Sure. So threat intelligence is basically, it's the data that you can use to determine if you have a problem, how big the problem is, and what you should do about the problem. And there are different flavors of threat intelligence. We think about external threat intelligence and internal threat intelligence or local threat intelligence. So there've been entire vendors in the business created around providing threat intelligence feeds as well as platforms that integrate multiple feeds and essentially you know trying to make sense of data around like where are the bad guys what are they doing how are they interacting with you how can someone else's experience help you be better prepared right so that's the whole class of external threat intelligence internal threat intelligence is more What's going on inside your business? What are your users, your devices, your applications doing? And what can you derive from that, those experiences to understand if there's something malicious, suspicious, or risky going on? So that kind of local threat intelligence, it's a little bit harder because you have to distill from your own reality what's important and what's unusual. And typically that's done more with greater context or understanding of your business and your risks. External threat intelligence is better if you've optimized it maybe for your industry, for example. You know, if someone else in your industry, be it a bank or healthcare or manufacturing or whatever, if they're being attacked in a certain way, odds are good that the same techniques will be applied to you because once proven, twice used, right? What would be an example of an internal threat? So insider threats are actually pretty common. You've got deliberately malicious 
actions, right? So for example, a few years ago, you had a database administrator at the city of San Francisco who deliberately changed the keys for getting access to the system. You have people who will go in and maybe they will destroy data or they will steal data or they will expose data in order to cause damage. Right. Then you have accidental threats, right, where you have someone who's trying to do the right thing and do their job correctly, but maybe they're taking some corners on policy or risk because they're in a hurry, they didn't know, you know, whatever. So they're not necessarily trying to be malicious, but they create risk and they create a problem. So often you'll see data that's exposed on a web page or a website because someone didn't do the right thing. We hear a lot of that right now around things like S3 buckets on Amazon where someone misconfigured it. And it wasn't intentional, but it was certainly damaging. So those are some of the insider risks that are pretty common. And the other thing to think about is that if you've got a guy who's outside, once they get inside, the first thing they do is escalate privileges and and do their best to look like an insider right? Maybe the way they got inside was to steal your credentials so that you they can then navigate around, figure out where the good stuff is and steal it or destroy it or whatever it is their mission is, right? So an at- attacker, once they get inside, is an insider. What are some of the ways that we can combat this? For example, the, what you mentioned about the DB admin who changed the keys So it's people working in your organization doing these attacks. What are some strategies that an organization can take to prevent this from happening? Great question. Essentially, people change behavior, right, or do unusual things for their role or their region or or the nature of their job, right? So one way you can detect changing risk is by monitoring more closely how things are changing and be on top of those changes more quickly, right? You know, if you do a a monthly check-in or a quarterly check-in, you could change that to be more of a weekly, daily, or hourly check-in. You can use things that we call behavioral monitoring to identify when something starts to behave differently. There are ways to use machine learning, for example, to understand changes in risk and changes in behavior that might be more subtle than you would notice, right? You know, if it's easy to observe certain kind of superficial changes, but a collection of detail that becomes a pattern might be easier for a system or a machine to detect reliably. So certainly one way to do this is to monitor and pay attention when something changes. And there's been a lot of research over the years. Um, Carnegie Mellon had a uh, you know, a focus on this for a long time, where people were saying, you can see when someone becomes an insider threat, and it it correlates to, like, their intention to leave the company, right? You know, for the two weeks prior to their announcing their departure, they'll start to download things. So there are things like that that are behavioral that you can detect and notice either because it's obvious or because you're using systems that are trained to look for this kind of stuff. In terms of other visibility, you know, some of it's about paying attention to where the dark spaces are in your network and in your universe today, right? A lot of people have invested in the traditional perimeter-based controls, things that are on the outside of your infrastructure, right? Whether that's a firewall or web gateway, or even endpoint technologies that are agent-driven and, you know, people put a bunch of detection kinds of capabilities and preventative controls out there. But if I can bypass them, then I can run amok, 
right? Or if I'm already inside, then I can run amok. And so increasing your sensitivity and your ability to notice that something's happening is also important. And that's an area where east-west visibility, if, if you think about it, it's inside the logical enterprise. Can you tell when something risky actually happens? And can you quickly do something about it. And there's a whole class of investment there. It's more, I think of it as late stage attack activities where you're looking at, assume you've got a problem. Can you deal with it quickly, reliably, and with accuracy so that you know that you've cleaned it up and you've moved on? You mentioned paying attention to where the dark spaces are. I know dark space is a term used in security. Can you explain in a bit more detail what this means? Sure. You know, the way I think about it is uh, it's a little bit like the old Pink Panther movies where the guy's wandering around with a spotlight. You know, people have put a lot of focus on certain things, right? Maybe it's my endpoint, right? Somebody's there and they're looking all the time. I've got preventative measures on there. There's a lot of focus on making sure my laptop is safe and the data that's on it is safe. There might be a lot of focus on the data center, right, where people have instrumented the systems to shed light on literally what's going on, right? Who's using it? What are they using it? What tables are they manipulating? You know, what are the commands they're using to interact with that, right? But there are two forms of dark space. There may still be areas where you're not looking, right? So those could be internal areas that are hard to monitor. They might be ephemeral areas that spin up like a workload. It spins up, it executes, it disappears. It didn't have a chance to be you know, illuminated, if you will. It might be encrypted traffic where I can't see inside it, so I don't know if it's good or bad, right? So uh, it's dark to me, right? So there are things like that where you don't have the visibility to understand, is something going wrong, right? And there's also organizational dark space, if you will, where there may be visibility, there may be uh, awareness of something, but it may not be available to the person who needs it, right? So if you are deeply involved in endpoint visibility, but I'm in another building, I'm in another division, I'm in the security department, I may not have the same access that you have. I can't see the same data. So those endpoints look dark to me, right? So there are different parts of it, but the key is, can you get accurate insights into the things that are happening in a timely fashion? And if not, there's too much dark space in your universe. And when I was researching for this, I saw ExtraHub, the company that you're currently working at, is looking at these blind spots and providing insights. Can you talk a little bit more about this? Sure. So we feel that there's a, a lot of value and detail that's exists within your network traffic, um, within the wire data that's, you know, in your universe. So if you can get access to that information and get meeting from that information quickly and uh, reliably, then you can take action against whatever the problem might be, right? It may be that you have a risk or a part of your attack surface that you didn't realize, and you can clean that up. It may be that someone is actively maneuvering through your network and trying to do bad things. And you can detect in time to disrupt it or contain it, or at least minimize the size of the impact crater, right? So our belief is that with the right data, with the high quality data, and with timely access to that data, you can get much more high 
fidelity analytics, much more definitive insights about what is going on. And you can quickly turn those conclusions into actions by understanding, you know, there's something wrong. How big is it? What nature is it? What should I do about it? Did I get to root cause? Do I understand everything I need to do to make it go away and return me to a safe state, my healthy condition? That's the process that is what a security operations center deals with. Detect, investigate, respond. We're helping make that better by introducing higher fidelity data, higher fidelity analytics driven by behavior and machine learning, and then integrated automated workflows that help people get through to the right conclusion in less time. For this case, what is the role of machine learning? You're talking about traffic analysis, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, network traffic analysis is the category that's emerging, the name for this. And a lot of it's about the east-west corridors. I think about it, the south-north corridor, right? If I'm already inside and I reach back outside, I may be going back out through perimeter controls that aren't really geared to detecting my activity. I'm just trying to understand the role of machine learning. If you could talk about a particular example where it can be used. So machine learning in some ways is the latest version of core technology that's really helping people get the problem solved more quickly and more effectively, right? In security, we started with signatures, we've moved on to rules, and now it's machine learning. And really what it is, is helping apply the strengths of machines to analyzing, assessing, and surfacing problems. So in our case, we are using machine learning to drive behavioral analysis, right? We are looking at the data, the metadata, and the dimensions off of the wires pulling this information from a data source, and we're using that to train and exercise machine learning models and identify stuff that people should worry about, whether that is privilege escalation that may have happened on an endpoint and now someone is maneuvering through your network. It might be someone who is exfiltrating data. It might be someone who is enumerating files so that they can activate a ransomware attack. Right. There are lots of different things that we can identify using machine learning more accurately, more reliably and more quickly than people can do at all or systems previously would be able to do with either rules or signatures. I see. We did a show on machine learning, or an introduction to machine learning. And there, what we saw is there's different categories of problems. For example, you can have one where you have data from houses, and then you can predict how much a house would cost based on properties like the number of rooms, that kind of thing. There's also, for images, you can have a machine learning model to predict if an image contains a cat or not a cat. In the space of security, can you give an example of how a problem can be framed in terms of of machine learning? Would this be predicting the likelihood that something is an attack? Well, one example that we've used is around anomaly detection. So traditional models might use statistics and baselining and say, you know, we are observing over time what's happening and we adjust what we expect to happen based on what does happen. And it's kind of a a moving average, right? But it's based on what is observed and there's no prediction involved, right? 
In our case, we're able to use the existing data and say, what do we think is going to happen based on the factors that we are aware of, risks and existing patterns, and extrapolate from there, what do we expect to happen? And then if the actual result deviates from that expectation, then we have a prediction that something's wrong, right? So you're not trapped inside a statistical moving average, which would absorb low and slow attacks over time, you are able to identify more broadly that something has changed. And you are able to also predict something? Well, we use prediction to indicate is something different from what we predicted? And is that going to be a problem for you? I think from a machine learning perspective, that's not as concise an example as you would like. I think the way we use it is we use unsupervised machine learning to do behavioral analysis. And we can detect at a more subtle level when the combination of devices and applications and systems are different from what they should be. You know, does a server start to act like a client, right? Does a endpoint start to act like a server? Things like that that are unexpected, we can identify through our machine learning models. Is the choice for using unsupervised models more adequate in this area of security? Well, I think security overall is faced with this skill shortage. You know, there's not enough people and they have not enough experience to deal with all of the, the sort of existing body of stuff you're supposed to understand as well as anything that emerges, you know, overnight, every night, right? So generally, people are looking for more ways for machines to step up and do more, whether that's in machine learning to keep up with evolving threats or in automation to take on more of the manual tasks and the, the predictable, repeated things that you want to outsource. So machine learning, you know, the difference between supervised and unsupervised, unsupervised means that it's going to continue to deliver value continuously, really. And it will change and evolve and adapt over time without a lot of input and oversight, right? And in an environment where you don't have a lot of people to do the input or the oversight, that's a good thing. From a security perspective, some companies are using machine learning, but they're, they're doing a supervised model. And that means that you're dependent on those companies. They may have a consultant who has to dial in once a week to figure out what, if anything, that they can see and what you should do about it. Well, you've taken yourself to a weekly cadence. You know, that's a lot of time for an attacker to get in, do their dirty work and get out, right? Relying on a supervised model is more appropriate for other types of data crunching and data mining than it is for the urgency and immediacy of a security context. And the evolving nature of the threats that you mentioned, for example, if we're dealing with supervised, the examples that we previously explored on the show were recommendations for movies. Movies tend to have very specific characteristics like director, the area, is it comedy or drama? With threats, they're constantly changing their characteristics, right? That's also another reason. Yeah, you think about the dimensions or the features that you use within the machine learning models. There are tons of them, right? We have 4,600 things that we pull off of our data to use to finally control the models, right? Um, lots of different variations. The thing about the changing nature is that any or all of those could be changing at the same time. 
there are some very impressive research projects out there that look at techniques and tactics and procedures of attackers. And the thing that's interesting about behavior is that my specific technique might change. I might switch from this file to that file. I might use some different approaches at a technical level, but the behavior I show, you know, the evidence of what I'm doing will still be the same. So if you think about someone who's picking a lock, right, do they use a hairpin, a bobby pin, or a lock pick set, or maybe they have some fancy, you know, electronic laser thing, right? They're still picking the lock, right? So we can observe certain kinds of behavior and know that those things are bad. Those are those are reasons why we see a lot of advantages to behavior when you're dealing with a landscape that moves so quickly versus old school techniques where you have to know that it's bad. Once you know that it's bad, you can write a signature or a rule or a model to accommodate it. But regardless, you are moving after the fact. And all that delay is opportunity when it comes to the bad guys. Earlier, one example that you gave of measuring behavior is using this, you can notice if somebody is preparing a ransomware attack. In an interview you did with The Cube, you said, we still keep seeing breachers and that ransomware is still a problem. It sounded like you're still a bit surprised that ransomware is still a problem. Well, I think that security industry wants to move on to the next thing, generally, because it's entertaining, it's interesting, it's intellectually engaging. The challenge is that the attackers will use whatever technique works works easily, works repeatedly, and works at lowest cost, right? So if you st if you turned off your antivirus on your endpoint, the first thing they would do is use Configure or some other, you know, I love you, some virus from yesteryear that worked before, right? So if you stop protecting against something or thinking about something, that's the first thing they'll use because they already know how to break that, right? So I think that ransomware, it isn't the techniques have stopped or that people aren't using it. We do see that companies and individuals have gotten smarter, right? We can be taught and we do elevate our capabilities. We do realize, let's not click on these, let's use our tools or whatever. What we've seen happen with ransomware is that they're taking the proven techniques from the consumer side and using them more reliably and creatively on the organization, the enterprise side. So looking at finding the servers that have enterprise databases, the file stores that have intellectual property, right? Bigger targets with a bigger payoff. So those bigger targets and bigger profit merit the harder work by the attacker. So we're seeing ransomware continue. The nature and the flavor of the attack varies and the target is getting more sophisticated, but the concept is still there. For those that aren't very familiar with it, can you explain what ransomware consists of? Sure. So the general idea is that If I can get into your computer and lock it, I will not let you back in until you pay me a ransom, right? So the theory is that you pay me money in Bitcoin or whatever, I will give you the key to unlock the system that I locked, right? So that was the consumer model that we had. And it was perpetrated typically by, you know, people visiting a website, downloading a file, clicking on an attachment. There are lots of different ways to introduce malware to people's universes. Uh, sadly. What we're seeing now is that people, the attacker will get on one system 
then they'll navigate horizontally to other endpoints looking for systems that have elevated privileges, right? So I may be a normal user with no root access, no system privileges, no extra special treats anywhere, right? But the person sitting next to me might have root access to get into a database. If the attacker can get from my endpoint, my laptop, to the guy next door, they can go farther and go faster and get to richer data. So that's the kind of thing that's happening now is people are finding a different, more interesting target, but they're still doing the same thing. The idea is, I've locked it up. Unless you give me money, I won't give it back. Since this problem is still pretty big and popular, is there anything that you wish more people knew about to prevent them from falling into these types of attack? Are there sort of basic things that they can take into consideration? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, generally, the first line of attack or defense should be your user, right? Trying to make sure that they understand better what to do and what not to do. And, you know, the challenge is that that's a continuing, never-ending battle, and it's hard, right? What you can do is increase your segmentation so that if one part of the, the universe gets stuck, it doesn't bleed over into other parts of the universe, right? So if my laptop is infected, maybe there's a network segmentation that means that my laptop can't actually reach out to the database administrator sitting next to me, right? So that will contain the risk to my laptop and limit the ability for the attack to spread or to, to escalate, right? You can do things like that where you're segmenting the network, you're grouping users, you're creating devices, and you essentially are creating more containment environments within your universe to, to limit the ability for an attack to spread if it's gotten in. You can also do some things to make yourself more resilient, if you will, to ransomware. So one might be to increase, as I mentioned, the dark space earlier. If you can increase your monitoring of what's happening, you can detect ransomware activities before they actually encrypt the file. So one thing that is true is often the encryption process is quite slow, right? It takes a while for the actual compute operations to happen. So if you can detect that they're trying, you can shut it down before they've succeeded. Another thing that you can do is monitor for the kinds of activities that happen when people are searching for the good stuff, right? So I might perform reconnaissance internally. I'll be looking around saying, are you a file server? Are you a file server? What kind of data do you have? Who do you talk to? So there are things that the attacker does to identify things that should be ransomed. You can look for those activities and shut them down before they have a chance to, to actually start to encrypt anything. And another thing that, you know, it's a little bit like, you know, get exercise and eat well, you should have the ability to restore your data. So if it's encrypted, you don't have to rely on them to give you back the key. Because honestly, that's not a, a good, it's not a safe bet, right? They may not do it in a timely fashion. And even if they did, are you willing to trust that they didn't leave themselves somehow a backdoor in that file? So if you have the ability to reconstruct the data and have it available to business or to go to a backup that hasn't been infected, then that's really core risk management tactic these days, given the, the likelihood of a ransomware infection. What you're saying is, first thing, it's hard to educate a lot of people on don't click here, don't download from there. So you're saying as product developers, we can alleviate some of that 
spreading of the ransomware, right? By being more resilient and being aware of grouping users. And Yeah, I think if you're a security person, you have to assume the worst, right? And there are certain kind of defensive things that you can do. And, and historically, we've called this defense in depth, and there are different ways to think about it. But it's basically don't rely on only one thing, right? If you assume that thing fails, then what, right? So if you assume your user will screw up, then what are you going to do? Well, you might isolate one group of users from the more sensitive assets that ransomware might try to go after, right? What else could you do? Well, you might have a feedback loop that says, did you want to do that? You don't necessarily have to allow everything that people might want to do on the network. You might implement more visibility and monitoring so that you can catch something if it happens before it does damage. So as a security person, you have to assume the worst and say, what can I do differently? What can I control? Because I can't control everything. And then you look at how do you change the processes and technologies since you can't control all the people. Exactly. You have experience leading security operations, market research, and product strategy for security products. What are some of the components of the product strategy roadmap in security products? So if we think about the core definition of security is confidentiality, integrity, and availability, right? So those are the ideas like security is about ensuring that data remains confidential, that it hasn't been changed, the integrity part, and that systems remain available, right? So those are things that you're trying to do in terms of maintaining a current state. That's what a practitioner is trying to do. If I'm building products, against that. I'm sitting there saying, okay, well, what would be happening to change that state, right? What attacks might disrupt um, confidentiality, right? So those would be database exfiltration, insider threats, privacy violations, things like that. What might affect integrity, right? Well, those could be things where you get a man in the middle and they change the data, right? They spoof something and give you different information. They turn off the logs. They turn off the agents. So there are different things that might change that. And then from an availability perspective, it's how do I keep things running, right? So that might be one way you approached thinking about what's going to change and how do I accommodate that. In our case, from a security operations perspective, there are a couple challenges that we as product folks try to, to deal with. There's visibility, there's understanding, and there's action, right? So how do I understand what's happening? How do I see everything that's going on? And traditionally, as security people, there, there have been places that I can't see, right? I don't have responsibility. People haven't given me the logs. Um, I don't have an agent, right? So we talked about the dark space. So job one, job zero, get the visibility you need, right? So as a product developer, where might people have insufficient visibility. Maybe it's the cloud, right? Maybe it's IoT devices. Maybe it's inside the database because the database administrator won't let me monitor that, right? Where are the things that might be challenged from a visibility perspective and what can I and my technology do to make that better? Maybe I can't give you better data, but I can give you better data faster, right? Um, maybe I can integrate my data with somebody else's data and create a finding that's more meaningful, right? I can surface the stuff that matters more quickly. So those are some of the things I would think about is kind of what's the problem that the customer has? How do I ameliorate it more quickly? And what are the technical advantages that I have to work with, right? You're in a kitchen, you're a cook, you've got certain ingredients. 
what kind of great recipe are you going to be able to make? Barbara, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's been great talking to you about security and product development. Oh, it's my pleasure. I appreciate the chance to be here and thank you. Thanks to Blind for being a new sponsor of the show. Go to teamblind.com. That's teamblind.com to download the app and connect with other employees from your company. Check it out. Check it out.